Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back. Last episode, we talked about how Alma founded the Church of Christ. And then I said that we were going to say goodbye to Alma and the church for a little while. We'll get the rest of their story, and it's quite a story, but we'll get it in the second flashback of the book of Mosiah. This is still the first flashback, and this flashback is about how Limai's people get to where they are, not Alma's. So the Church of Christ figures into this story, but only in as much as it influences the broader trajectory of the Xenophytes. Today we're going to take the Xenophyte story head on, and we're going to do it in one big chunk with chapters 19 through 22. So we'll be moving kind of fast, but the episode will still be on the longer side. And here we go with chapter 19. Noah's army has just tried to hunt down the Church of Christ, and Mormon picks up the story in chapter 19 with the return of the army having unsuccessfully searched for the people of the Lord. The king's army is weak, and Mormon tells us that there began to be division among the remainder of the people, and the lesser part of the people began to breathe out threatenings against the king, and there began to be a great contention among them. That's not a good sign. Mormon isn't concerned with getting into the political weeds here, but it's very likely that the church was the variable that changed the equation. There were all kinds of grievances that the people of Noah could have raised. They were being overtaxed, their daughters were being made victims of sexual violence, and now their friends and family have just been chased away for gathering in the wilderness, worshiping Christ, and taking care of each other. The members of the church have left, meaning those who remained behind were not part of the church. But it seems like the creation of the church and the unjustified attack against the church has been the spark that was needed to ignite an already existing powder keg. I've mentioned that I studied religion in school, and one of my favorite aspects of religion that I like to study was religious conflict. And when trying to understand religious conflicts throughout history, we liked to understand the variables that led to the conflicts in terms of structure, chance, and choice. By structure, I mean, what are the institutional, cultural, and historical factors that are in place that contribute to this conflict? In terms of Noah and his people, taxes would be a structural factor. The inequality between Noah's court and the people, the historical conflict with the Lamanites will be a factor, and the founding of the church. Those are some structural factors. Chance refers to freak things that nobody would have foreseen that tip the scale one way or the other. A natural disaster is an example of chance. There will be some of that in this story. And choice refers to how individual actors choose to respond to structure and chance. An example of choice would be Noah choosing to go after the church or the story that Mormon gives us at the beginning of chapter 19 of a man named Gideon who was an enemy of the king drawing his sword and going head-to-head with Noah. Mormon tells us that Gideon is beating Noah, so Noah ends up fleeing to his tower that he's built by the temple. This is another little story that would make a great movie scene. Just as Gideon is about to climb the tower and kill Noah, Noah looks out from the tower towards the land of Shemlon, and behold, the army of the Lamanites were within the borders of the land, And now the king cried out in the anguish of his soul, saying, Gideon, spare me, for the Lamanites are upon us. Yea, they will destroy my people. Then Mormon makes sure we know. And now the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about his own life. Nevertheless, Gideon did spare his life. Okay, this is a perfect example of how choice and chance meet. The Lamanites 
just happened to attack right in the middle of this revolution, and Gideon chooses to spare Noah's life for the sake of the people. He could have killed him, and things would have worked out differently, but he didn't. So Noah, the spineless king that he is, commands the people to flee into the wilderness from the Lamanites. But the Lamanites catch up to the people and begin killing them. Noah then commands all of the men to leave their wives and children and flee into the wilderness. You know, we've talked about how Noah and his priests like to oppress women, and we haven't seen the end of that, but this story makes crystal clear how depraved their society has become. Thankfully, not everybody listens to Noah. Verse 12 tells us, Now there were many that would not leave their families, but had rather stayed and perished with them, and the rest left their wives and their children and fled. One of the men who stays behind is Noah's son, Limhi, and he's in the position that too many sons find themselves in, of having to recognize that their father isn't a just man. Limhi, as we know, will end up leading the people, trying to piece things back together now that Noah has fled. Gideon, the one who almost killed Noah earlier on, sends men after those who had fled, and they find all of the men in the wilderness, except for the king and his priests. These men wanted to go back and exact vengeance upon the Lamanites, but Noah commands them to stay, so they burn him alive. They were going to do the same thing to the priests, but the priests managed to get away. We've already seen that Abinadi's prophecies are being fulfilled. Noah thought that Abinadi was crazy. In his mind, his kingdom was so strong and so prosperous that nothing was going to change that. Of course, his decision to execute Abinadi, there's an example of choice, was what led Alma to begin preaching, which led to the creation of the church, which Noah attacked, which was the tipping point for many of the people who decided to revolt right at the time the Lamanites chose to attack. You can't say that Noah wasn't warned. Corrupt leaders often provide all that's needed for their downfall. The men who killed Noah find out that their wives and children have survived. It turns out Limhi is able to strike a deal with the Lamanites that allows them to return to the land of Nephi and live under bondage. And so these men who've left their wives return, and you can imagine how they were greeted. Limhi is made king by the people and the Lamanites set guards around the land. Mormon ends chapter 19 by telling us, And now King Limhi did have continual peace in his kingdom for the space of two years, which probably puts us around 145 BC, that the Lamanites did not molest them nor seek to destroy them. This brings us to chapter 20, and Mormon shifts gears a little. Instead of focusing on the people of Limhi, who for the time being are living in relative peace, Mormon fills us in on what happens to Noah's priests. Mormon really is a master storyteller. He knows how to jump in and out of narratives in a way that keeps the story moving. We learn at the beginning of chapter 20 that the priests of Noah completely abandoned their wives and children in the land of Nephi, out of fear that the people would kill them if they returned, and they're probably right about that. They were terrible. So they live in the wilderness for a while, and these men are so terrible that they find a way to continue their oppression of women, even in the wilderness. These priests just happen upon a place where young Lamanite women would gather to dance, and after spying on them for a little while, creepy, they decide that they are more than justified in kidnapping 24 of these young women. Talk about no natural affection. These guys clearly hate women. I know that we've talked about this before, but the Nephite treatment of women is a really good barometer of how close they are to destruction, and that will remain the case when we return to the people of Limhi. We'll find out what happened to the priests and the kidnapped girls when they reappear in chapter 23. The Lamanites aren't happy with the fact that their daughters had been kidnapped, and they suspect Limhi and his people. They aren't far off. Remember, until recently, the people were being led and flattered by Noah and his priests. 
who had a problem with targeting women. So even though Limai is more like his grandfather Zenith than his father Noah, the Lamanites are more than justified in their suspicions. The Lamanites attack the Zenithites, but Limhi is able to prepare his people for the attack and they end up ambushing the Lamanites. The Lamanites aren't expecting their captives to fight like dragons, that's how Mormon describes it, and they flee. Fortuitously for Limhi, the king of the Lamanites happened to be among one of the soldiers left for dead, but he wasn't dead. Limhi spares the life of the king and demonstrates good faith by taking the kidnapping seriously. He's about to search among his people when the ever-vigilant Gideon, you remember Gideon, he's the one who almost killed Noah, well Gideon, who is now Limhi's captain, worthy choice, he speaks up and connects the dots. Obviously, it's the priests who have done this. Gideon is also connecting other dots, which is revealing when it comes to trying to discern the state of the people. Listen to his advice to Limhi. Tell the king of these things, that is, Gideon's suspicion of the priests, that he may tell his people that they may be pacified toward us. For behold, they are already preparing to come against us. And behold, also, there are but few of us. And behold, they come with their numerous hosts, and except the king doth pacify them towards us, we must perish. For are not the words of Abinadi fulfilled, which he prophesied against us? And all this because we would not hearken of the words of the Lord and turn from our iniquities. And now let us pacify the king, and we fulfill the oath which we have made unto him. For it is better that we be in bondage than we should lose our lives. Therefore let us put a stop to the shedding of so much blood. This is a marked change from the type of rhetoric that we were getting from the people under Noah. Remember how they were so sure that 50 of them could take on thousands of Lamanites because of their own strength? Gideon may have even been one of those guys boasting, but he's singing a different tune now. Not only is he not bloodthirsty and arrogant, he's also seeing the fulfillment of prophecy, which means that he realizes the Lord had sent a prophet to warn them, and he knows that they didn't listen. That's sober and humble leadership, and he's prioritizing people's lives over the need to appear successful. He's not seeking to blame, and he seems to have no need to justify himself. What that allows for is him to make a better decision for the sake of his people instead of barreling ahead into a massacre for the sake of saving face. Limhi follows Gideon's advice and pacifies the king. The Lamanite king and Limhi, along with all the people, actually go out and meet the Lamanites without weapons. That's pretty radical. Remember when we started this flashback, I said that we'd get some opportunities to think about the issue of violence. This is one of those moments. Under Limhi and Gideon's leadership, as well as the king of the Lamanites, the Zenophites and the Lamanites are spared from violent confrontation. On to chapter 21, the peace doesn't last long, and the Lamanites start harassing Limhi's people. Mormon sprinkles phrases from Abinadi throughout this section, just to make the point to careful readers that all of this is in fulfillment of prophecy. He's not telling us all of this to show how evil the Lamanites are. He's making sure that we remember that this is the natural outcome of the type of society that existed under Noah and his priests. That's a warning to anyone who will listen. This is a pretty terrible section of the story. Limhi's people are getting sick of being oppressed by the Lamanites, and they want Limhi to lead them to battle. They haven't quite humbled themselves enough to get Abinadi's full message, that it's the Lord who is the deliverer. So they're going to try their own strength. Mormon straight up tells us that there was no way that they could deliver themselves out of their hands. But they end up going to battle anyways, and they get destroyed. Mormon tells us, Now there was a great mourning and lamentation among the people of Limhi. Things were already bad, and now they're worse, and frankly, they didn't need to be. 
Mormon makes sure that we see the human cost of this decision to go to battle. Mormon describes the widow mourning for her husband, the son and the daughter mourning for their father, and the brothers for their brethren. Now there were a great many widows in the land, and they did cry mightily, that's another phrase from Abinadi, from day to day. This constant and widespread mourning ends up igniting more anger among the people of Limhi, and they decide that they should attack the Lamanites again. Let's pause here and evaluate from our privileged position as readers. There's no way that they think that they're going to be able to overcome the Lamanites. Their forces have been diminished three times over, and their most recent battle has left them completely broken, and yet they're going to add to their brokenness out of anger and a need for revenge. And we can certainly empathize with this. They are already living under the burden of oppression and have been for years. The Lamanites are clearly the bad guys, and they deserve to be attacked. That's what justice demands, right? Except that's not the story that Mormon is telling. From our initial encounter with Limhi, we have been told that this is the natural outcome of organizing your society around vanity, wealth, wickedness, and inequality. There's a lesson for all of us who might find ourselves trapped in conflicts from time to time. Do you want to feel justified or do you want to have peace and healing? If you want to feel justified, keep attacking and keep blaming. It'll be cathartic and you'll feel a sense of justice but you will very likely increase the ability of that conflict to wound. My mission president put it like this to me. He told me that 99% of the potential fights that husband and wives get into aren't worth it, that the relationship is more important than the fights. When he told me that, I was still a missionary and only had a theoretical understanding of what it was to be married. I'm now eight years into my marriage, and I'm grateful that I took his advice to heart, because many of the times when I wanted to be justified or to be right, just weren't worth doing harm to my relationship. I once heard Sister Hinckley say that she didn't remember a single time when President Hinckley ever yelled at her. Can you imagine being able to pull that off for as long as they were married? I made that a goal of mine when I was still in my youth, and so far I've stuck to it. Our relationships are worth more than our justifications, and Limhi's people are intent on learning this the hard way. Finally, they learn their lesson, though, and humble themselves. They had been smitten, driven to and fro. They had to cry mightily to God all the day long so that he could deliver them out of their afflictions. But the Lord was slow to hear their cry and deliver them out of bondage. All of those are phrases directly from Abinadi that Mormon uses to describe the experience of this people. Mormon tells us, And they did humble themselves even to the dust, subjecting themselves to the yoke of bondage, submitting themselves. This is so counterintuitive in the modern West. We don't submit. Give me liberty or give me death, right? Don't tread on me, right? Well, apparently not in this case, because it's only after they submit to their burdens that the Lord does hear their cries and began to soften the hearts of the Lamanites, and they began to ease their burdens. And it came to pass that they began to prosper by degrees in the land and began to raise grain more abundantly in flocks and herds that they did not suffer hunger. This part would make a terrible movie. There's no action, there's no heroism, there's no Avengers showing up and saving the world. How did things start to improve? The Lord softens the heart of the Lamanites. How did they start to prosper by degrees? They stopped marching into the swords of the Lamanites, all hopped up on their justifications, and they instead plant their crops. And then there's this. Now there was a great number of women, more than there was of men. Therefore, King Limhi commanded that every man should impart to the support of the widows and their children that they might not perish with hunger. And this they did because of the greatness of their number had been slain. Here's our key indicator. How are the Xenophytes treating women? 
Now they're taking responsibility for them, caring for them, being accountable for the fact that it was their pride and need for revenge that robbed them of their husbands, sons, fathers, and brothers. It's in this moment of humility, repentance, relative peace, and relative prosperity that we actually catch up in our timeline, and a man named Ammon, from a place called Zarahemla, finds Limhi outside the walls of the city. What's phenomenal about this story is that even before the people of Limhi were humble enough to be delivered, the Lord was putting things in motion to deliver them. Benjamin had given his speech three years earlier. The people in Zarahemla had made the covenant to be the children of Christ. That led them to start wanting to gather in those lost Nephites. And the people of Zarahemla teased Mosiah until he ends up sending a search party led by Ammon. We could probably go back further, but I think that illustrates the principle. They are delivered when they are willing to accept the type of deliverance the Lord offers. Meanwhile, in an attempt to liberate themselves, Limhi had sent out a search party to look for Zarahemla, and they found the Jaredite records instead, which is another way that the Lord is working in mysterious ways to bring forth scripture. It's all quite remarkable how the threads weave together. Limhi and his people make a covenant with God, helped out by Ammon, probably very similar to how Benjamin's people make their covenant. And they want to be baptized like Alma's people, but Ammon doesn't consider himself a worthy enough person to baptize. It's possible that baptism as a ritual had fallen out of use among the people of Zarahemla, and Ammon was unfamiliar with it. Alright, chapter 22. This will go pretty fast. Ammon begins to help Limhi think through ways of escaping the land of Nephi and leading his people to the land of Zarahemla. They're going to abandon the whole trying to restore the kingdom of Nephi thing. This time, they're committed to bringing their women and children with them, which should be a given, but which we also know has been a struggle for them in the past. Gideon, again the hero of the Xenophites, comes up with a winning plan. He's going to get the Lamanite guards drunk with wine, and they're going to make a bolt for it with whatever they can carry. This isn't the last time the Nephites will use the get him drunk tactic. It's actually pretty cool how often it works, considering it's a non-violent solution that the Lord uses again and again to liberate his people. And this is the first time that we see it work. And led by Ammon and his brethren, the Zenophites make it safely to Zarahemla and join Mosiah's people as his subjects. The Lamanites try and track them down, but get lost in the wilderness. That will prove to be problematic for Alma's people, but we'll have to save that until next time. That completes our first flashback in the book of Mosiah. It spans about 50 years, the rise and fall of a kingdom, the words of a prophet, and his execution. The creation of a new religious community, the discovery of a lost people in their records, and the miraculous deliverance by the Lord through simple means. There are a lot of things that we can take away from this story, but one of the big lessons is that the Lord delivers us when we are prepared to be delivered. Being ready for deliverance will look differently at different times. For the Xenophites, it meant that they were living equitably, treating women with respect, and looking to the Lord for deliverance and not to their own strength and ability to wound or kill. For you and I, it may look differently, but it takes patience, humility, trust, and hope to wait on the Lord. In our next episode, we'll begin our second flashback in the book of Mosiah and discover what happened to Alma and the Church of Christ after they fled Noah's army. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.